All right. Well, let me begin by sharing a little bit about what is known as the church calendar. Um, although the dates of observance as well as the specific practices of the Christian holidays and festivals have developed over the centuries. Um, actually, uh, the major events of what is known as the Christian calendar all center on the life of Christ. And by the 5th century, all of the basic elements of what many churches follow as the church calendar uh, were firmly established. There were some modifications that continue to be made throughout the Middle Ages and the Reformation. But even today, even today, the way each of these special occasions are observed varies according to the denomination, the culture, and even personal preference. For instance, uh, I have been in churches that had the different colored candles. Uh, I've been in them that had all of the four white ones with one larger one in the center. Uh, it just, it varies so much uh, from place to place. But even like communion, we pass the plates and we partake as they're passed. I have attended and been a part of churches where the bread was passed and everybody partook together and then the cup was passed and everybody partook of the cup together uh, not at a time I've even been to a worship service where there was one large piece of unleavened bread and it was torn apart as the worship was beginning and there was one large cup and they took the bread and dipped it in the cup and partook okay I guess my point is, is it's not so much exactly how we do something, but why we're doing it. Why we're doing it. And the original Christian memorial, and really the basic building block for the church, is the Lord's Day, Sunday. The earliest Christians set aside Sunday, the day of the resurrection, as a time of special remembrance of Jesus Christ. And we see this as early as Acts chapter 20, where we read, On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. They were talking about coming together to have communion. Uh, they talked about meals. Acts 2.42 talks about the breaking of bread and prayer, but it also talks about a meal separate from that. It was a comment about coming together to remember uh, the Lord's crucifixion. Uh, 1 Corinthians 16.2 Paul reminds the Christians at Corinth in terms of their giving that on the first day of the week in other words when you come together each one of you should set aside a sum of, sum of money in keeping with his income. Right from the very beginning it was understood everybody's not going to be able to give the same amount the same way but we are to do that in keeping with how God has blessed us. Now, by the second century, most of the Christians were observing a special celebration uh, of the resurrection at Easter. And in most areas, the season before Easter, which later came to be called Lent, was also set aside as a time of preparation. 
a time of penitence, uh, a time for special training of new Christians. But today, whether you realize it or not, today is a special day on the church calendar. We've never had a big focus on the so-called church calendar in the Christian churches and Church of Christ. Um, this is not a day, a religious holiday, that my family observed when we were growing up, even though my dad was a minister. Uh, nor any of the churches, actually, that I was a part of. But today is the first Sunday of a time that is set, has been set aside as early as the 4th century A.D., a time set aside when most Christians began to celebrate Christ's birth at Christmas and to observe Advent as a period of preparation. Now you might say, uh, you know, what is Advent? And, that, and that's a question that I myself asked not all that many years ago. The name Advent was adopted from a Latin word, Adventus, which means coming, arrival. It actually translates the Greek word parousia. And that connection might seem strange to you because when we think about parousia and in the New Testament, the word parousia is the term most often used for the second coming of Christ. But so it is with the season of Advent. As part of the Christian calendar, Advent anticipates the coming of Christ from three different perspectives. First, the physical birth. What we know of as the incarnation. The birth of the baby uh, in Bethlehem. And the nativity scene. But secondly, Advent also uh, is seen from the reception of Christ into our hearts. The heart of the believer. Uh, what we speak about as the, the new birth or being born again. And thirdly, Advent also includes the coming of Christ, the second coming, the beginning of the new age. Now, if you notice, because of this emphasis on newness, the new baby, the new birth, the new heavens and the new earth, Advent came to be regarded as the beginning of the church year. And everything moved from Advent. And from Advent to Pentecost, the focus, even in the liturgical readings, the focus was on the, the teaching and the life of Christ Himself. And then from, from Pentecost on around to Advent again, then the teaching was on what actually Christ did in terms of the reaching out and what that means in terms of you and I putting into application those teachings of Christ himself. Um, in this way, and I think it's very helpful, in this way, it was believed that we, with the church calendar, the churches, the Christians, would be assured that worship would deal with the entire breadth and depth of the Christian gospel. Um, now you know, as a part of my practice, that I, by and large, preach through books in the Bible. That's my way of making sure that I cover 
all of the teachings. I don't just hit and miss my my pet peeves or something, and you know, go through and deal with all of it, even if it's a passage that it's like, oh, I wish this wasn't coming up this week because this is a tough one. No, if it's there, I preach through it. I teach through it. Uh, right now, we are doing uh, a series of sermons on the parables, not a book in the Bible. But do you know that there are many, there are many churches and many of my friends who it's basically hit and miss. Some of my friends don't even plan a month or two in advance. Uh, it's just whatever comes to them that week. You've probably been there if you have Christian ministers that are friends on Facebook. Help me out with a sermon for Sunday. Give me some ideas. Uh, I, I can't go there myself. I believe in a Holy Spirit that's big enough to guide me even months ahead so that, that Kay, my secretary, has my outlines uh, at the beginning of the week and she has the text and the sermon titles a month in advance and those are published because I believe that the Spirit can even work through those that way. I don't have to wait till on the morning uh, as this is really sad. My dad went into a McDonald's that he always went into and the waitress or person at the desk when he was getting his coffee said, hey, there's a guy that comes in here with your group every once in a while. And she described him. And Dad kind of knew who she was talking about and said, is he a minister? And, and Dad further described, she said, yeah, that's the guy. Dad said, yeah, he's a minister. Well, every Sunday morning, he comes in with a notebook and his Bible and sits back there in the corner. And I'm not convinced he wasn't writing his sermon on Sunday morning. Uh, now, I know the Holy Spirit's big enough to help him through that too. But I need a little more help than that. Uh, and uh, I already stated that Advent is understood to be a, a period of preparation. And it's a season that lasts anywhere from four Sundays to six weeks. With four being the most common, by the way. And that's why, in most cases, there are four candles uh, with variety. But those four candles, each one stands for something different. The first candle on the first Sunday of Advent, which is today, is the candle of hope or promise. The second candle is the candle of preparation or waiting and prophecy. The third candle is the candle of joy or peace. And the fourth candle is the candle of love or adoration. Now, with Advent having this focus on preparation, we have a very real connection with the messages that I've preached the last two Sundays. And that is the emphasis on the importance of preparation. Two weeks ago, as we looked at the parable of the sower, we were reminded of the importance of the preparation in terms of both the soil being ready for the seed and our hearts and mind being ready to hear the good news of the gospel. Last Sunday, as we focused on thanksgiving and satisfaction and the parable of the rich fool, we noticed the urgent need to reestablish our priorities, to reconsider the very conditions of our existence, which should remind us of the importance of being prepared. 
Since the Bible did say in that parable, this night your soul is required of you. And we can change that to say this night our soul might be required of us. There's no guarantee that when I leave here today, we're, we're going to make a trip over uh, a little bit further east and we're going to take the truck and we're going to cut down a Christmas tree and bring it home. There is no guarantee that an accident can't happen. And just like that, all three of us could have our lives terminated or one or two of us. One practice regarding Advent, of which I'm familiar, is for the ancient Advent devotions to take place in a question and answer kind of format. Where a child might be prompted to ask questions and the answer is given by way of a scripture reading. For example, the child may ask, why do we light the second candle on the Advent wreath? And the adult may answer, that candle reminds us of the need to prepare for the Messiah who, who would come, bringing peace and love to the world. And then the message that might be read would be Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3 to 5. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God, every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall, shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Well, one of the stories that Jesus told has to do with this need of being ready. Not only being ready, but being prepared. And it's a story we have often referred to as the ten virgins. And it's found in Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 to 13. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom! Come out to meet him! Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. May God add his blessing to our reading of his word. 
But did you notice how Jesus concludes the story? Watch, therefore, for you don't know the day nor the hour. We're studying the Gospel of Matthew on Wednesday nights. And the last time we met, we looked at how one of the common threads in the parables in chapters 24 and 25, what one writer has referred to as Advent parables, is that first of all, there are no signs that the return is about to happen. In fact, the opposite that we cannot know is stressed. Did you see that in this parable? They had no idea. They heard an announcement and there he was and all of a sudden it was too late. Secondly, that there had been a long delay between the master or the bridegroom when he was expected to return and when the actual return took place. In fact, if it will help you, Notice that three of the parables in chapters 24 and 25 are really about a return of the Master, the second coming. And all three involve a delay. Chapter 24, verse 48. My Master is delayed a long time and will come on a day when He does not expect Him. Matthew goes on to write, or Jesus goes on to say as He was teaching the parable, our story for today verse 5 and the bridegroom was delayed a long time later in chapter 25 verse 19 now after a long time there are those who said that Jesus and the early apostles and Christians believed that the Lord was going to come back right away very quickly but I don't think that's what Jesus taught these parables about the return of the Master all indicate there was going to be a delay. There was going to be a long time. No signs of when that was going to happen. A long delay. And thirdly, but oh, wait a minute, before I go to the third one. No signs. Go back, read chapter 24 and 25. The signs that are given in Matthew 24 are not about the second coming, about the parousia, about the return of Christ. The signs that are given are about the destruction of Jerusalem that was going to take place in 70 AD. And there were signs for that. And because of those signs, the Christians saw what was taking place and got out of that. And ancient history doesn't record a single Christian losing their life during the destruction of Jerusalem in which it says literally the streets were filled with blood that so many people were slaughtered. They heard those signs Jesus had given and they got out of there. But in return of the second coming, in return of the coming of the Lord, there's not going to be any signs. I've shared this with you before. People asked me just this week, somebody said and asked me again, Preacher, do you think we're living in the last days? And I said, Absolutely but not the way you think that I'm thinking when I say the last days. We have been living in the last days from when Christ ascended in Matthew and when He's going to return on Judgment Day. The writer of Hebrews chapter 1 says, in these last days. Peter talks about in these last days. Yeah, we're living in the last days and have been. 
and will continue to live in those days until Christ returns. But thirdly, in the parable, in the story that we're now looking at, there's another fact that we need, uh, that we find consistently in the New Testament. And that is on the day of reckoning, on judgment day, there's only going to be two categories. In our story, it's the wise and the foolish. As Jesus continues, still in chapter 25 of Matthew, it's the good and faithful servant or compared to the wicked and slothful servant. And just a bit further down, verses 31 and following, it's the division between the sheep and the goats. Two categories. Those who are allowed to enter and those who will remain outside. Eternal punishment or eternal reward. Only two categories. So let's take a moment uh, to look at these two categories that are before us in the marriage feast. Charles Spurgeon, great preacher of the past, once preached a sermon using this parable of the story. And his title of his sermon was simply Entrance and Exclusion. Now I'll bet you people saw that and they thought, wow, this is interesting. I wonder what this is going to be about. And it was about the parable of the wise and the foolish. First, in his two categories, he had the ready and their entrance. The ready and their entrance. Once again, with the previous parable and story, the theme is division. Division. It's mentioned right away. Of the ten, verse 2 says, five were foolish, five were wise. Now, the background of this parable is Jewish wedding customs in the first century. And if you don't understand Jewish wedding customs in the first century, the parable is not going to make a lot of sense to you. The wedding was not only one, a joyful affair, but two, it was a long drawn out affair. The couple wouldn't go away on a honeymoon, but they would stay at home and they would entertain and welcome visitors and guests. Thirdly, it was a relaxed affair. There was no set time when the bridegroom would come to the house of his bride either to eat the wedding feast there or more frequently to take her to his own home and the wedding feast. And the festivities, they lasted for a week or even two. And it was marked by great joy. Now, I just have the one daughter left that's not married. And I can't imagine the expense of a week-long, drawn-out <laughs> wedding. Uh, in fact, some of the expense of what takes place on the one day for weddings uh, is beyond my imagination. But that was the custom. And the festivities, they, they were marked by, like I said, joy and feasting and music. We're, we're kind of back into the feasting, aren't we? When I was young, you know what a wedding had? Punch and cake, and maybe if you were lucky, some mints to go along with it. But now there's sit-down meals. Oh, we had meals, but that was on the night before. It was called a rehearsal dinner. And it was only the 
wedding party in their families. But they had a great big festival of a meal that people were invited to. And the, and the virgins that it talks about, the young unmarried girls, they would be there to escort the bridegroom, not the bride. Are you hearing me? It was the bridegroom. And once the bridegroom arrived and went in, the door was shut. And there was no possibility of late access. And so the foolish virgins will have missed the whole week, not just one supper. They're going to be shut out from all that is taking place. Now as we think about these customs, of which his hearers would have been very familiar, notice how Jesus used them for his purposes. As he looked forward to his advent, his return on that great day. Now, I don't think it's difficult to understand and to read that the main thrust of the parable is that Jesus is the bridegroom. He will come one day, a day nobody knows. I'm sorry, all those people that have written all those books, well, first of all, all of the books that I know about, including The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey, uh, the day he predicted it's already come and gone and, and the Lord didn't return. Which the Bible talks about a lot, a lot about false prophecies and false prophets and what should be done. But Jesus is the bridegroom and he's going to return on a day that nobody knows in order to take his bride, which is the church, to take his bride and celebrate the great marriage supper. Now the virgins, they, I believe, represent especially the Christian people. And you say, well, how can you say that? Well, first of all, they knew about the wedding and the return that was going to take place, right? So they're not outsiders unaware. These are people that knew that there was a wedding that was going to take place. But notice, even if it's the Christians, which I believe it was, half of them were prepared for His coming. They had their lamps required for any nighttime wedding and they had taken the trouble to put oil in them and they even had extra oil in case that there might be a delay. And that happens in the parable as Jesus told it. So when the cry went out at midnight, here's the bridegroom coming out to meet him. The wise who were prepared, the wise who were ready, the wise who were letting their light so shine before men were allowed to enter in and included in the marriage feast. But I said also that there's a second category, a second group. The five foolish who were the unready and thereby the excluded. Now, when you compare this parable with the parable of the thief that Jesus had just told, both stories emphasize the need to watch and be ready for an end that cannot be calculated and to do it with the awareness that 
that thief could come at any time in the night and the only safeguard against thieves is to stay on constant watch. But in this parable, the parable of the wise and foolish, did you happen to notice that both groups were asleep? The wise and the foolish were both asleep while they were waiting for the bridegroom. And you might notice that they're not faulted for being asleep. Is there anything in the story that says the wise were in trouble because they also had fallen asleep? No. I think that this indicates that watching has nothing to do with being alert for the so-called signs of the second coming of the bridegroom. Jesus does say that they are sufficiently alerted by a cry. Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Go to Revelation. Everybody's going to be notified. A loud horn, trumpet, blast. Okay? You see, the issue isn't whether or not they'll be asleep. The issue is whether or not they'll have oil for their lamps at that moment to be able to welcome the bridegroom and to enter into the marriage feast. Now you might think that the wise maidens should have shared their supply of oil with those who had not provided so that they might all enter into the feast. Well, first of all, in uh, what is probably the most highly recognized Greek-English lexicon, the Louis Nida Greek-English lexicon in the New Testament, they point out that the vessels that are being referred to here, the flasks, would have held a relatively small personal amount of oil, not more than a liter or a quart at most. Only enough for their own personal use. In other words, and this is a hard one for me to say, my family, some of my kids, cannot rely on me being prepared for them to enter into the kingdom of heaven when the Lord returns. I can't share my oil with them in that way at that point. It'll be too late. You see, the parable is an allegory about spiritual readiness, spiritual preparedness. It's not a lesson on the golden rule. Spiritual readiness is not something that can be transferred to one person from one person to another. Our kids are not going to get into heaven on our coattails. As much as we might like. The point of the story is that you and I need to be taking steps to prepare ourselves, to furnish ourselves with that oil before we go to sleep and while we have the chance. And I think in this parable, sleeping is the euphemism for death. You see, the other half of the girls, those designated as foolish, they weren't prepared. They weren't ready for the bridegroom to come at a time that they least expected His return. And the message in light of the return of Christ at the end of time is to be clear. It's very clear. Be prepared. Jesus ended this story with the warning that He had uttered before in chapter 24, verse 42. Therefore, stay awake. Watch. 
It doesn't mean standing on a mountaintop, gazing in the heavens, which the Millerites did in, back in 1953, by the way. They got rid of all their personal possessions, went to the top of a hill, and sat there waiting because they had been told that on that day the Lord was going to return. Nor does it mean standing on a mountaintop gazing in the heavens as in Acts chapter 9, 1 verses 9 to 11 when the disciples were looking up as the Lord left and they were still looking and the two angels in white robes said, why are you standing looking into the heavens? Go get busy. <laughs> no, what it means is exactly the same as it meant in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus told his disciples to stay alert and pray. So, by way of conclusion, here's my question. Are we living wisely or foolishly? Are we letting our light shine before others that they might see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven? Or are we like those five foolish? Ah, he's not going to come back yet. I got more time. I can, I can do this. James says, oh, we say we can go here, go there, do this business, do that business. But we don't know because we don't know what our life is. Except that it's a vapor, a mist that appears on a mirror for a while and then it's gone. What's the Bible say about salvation? Today. Today is the day of salvation. And if I choose any other day, I might be putting myself in jeopardy of eternal punishment. You see, I could go on and on and on and on, but I'm not going to, I promise you. I grieve. My heart aches when I hear people who are Christians or who carry the name Christian who say, well, yeah, I love God, but I don't love the church. The Bible says God is our Father. The same Bible says the church is the bride of Christ. And if we are followers of Christ and the church is His bride, the church is kind of like our spiritual mother. It carries the, the female imagery throughout the Bible. How can we say we love God and we love Christ if we don't also say we love His bride. Rich, are you going to have a hard, a easy time or a hard time being around and being close to people that don't like your bride? Hard time. 
I, I don't know that I would even want to be around on a regular basis anybody that didn't like my bride. How can people think for a minute that they're going to walk into heaven when Christ is the judge and the church is His bride if they have nothing to do in their earthly lives with the church? Can I worship God down by the river and in the woods? Yes. Why can I do that? Because I'm a part of the bride, the church. But I can't expect to do that if I'm not a part of the church. That's nonsense, scripturally speaking. If Jesus came right now, are you prepared? Let's pray. Thank <laughs> you.